Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. That's Matthew 8.8, in which the Roman centurion asked Jesus to heal his paralyzed slave at a distance. Catholics will recognize it from the invitation to communion at Mass. After the priest says, Blessed are those called to the Supper of the Lamb, we reply, Lord, I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof, but only say the word and my soul shall be healed. The centurion's servant was healed at that moment. And as we partake of the Eucharist, take it under the roof of our mouths, I like to think, spiritual healing is brought just as powerfully to us. This is the Living the Word Bible Podcast. I'm Sarah Chris Meyer, talking with women about the Bible and the difference it makes in our lives. Today, I am joined by Colleen Vermeulen. She's a Bible teacher and also director of Michigan's Catholic Biblical School, whose chief aim is to connect people to the scriptures so they can hear God's word and grow in faith. So Colleen, welcome to Living the Word Bible Podcast. Hi, Sarah. Great to be here. Yeah, you know, Colleen, I know you've been really active in your parish over the years, everything from music ministry to adult faith formation, probably a lot more than that. You're also an officer in the U.S. Army, and you are a parent. Tell us about your family. So my husband and I got married in 2011, and we actually did meet serving on active duty in the Army. We met in Iraq, and so we've been married since 2011, and we are blessed to have four children. Our oldest, Peter, is in fourth grade, and then Cyril is in second grade. Paul is a three and a half year old, and then we have a 10 month old named Francis Xavier. So, four boys. Oh, and great names. I love that just noticing Peter and Paul, and we have the Feast of Saints Peter and Paul coming up later this month. It's a great time to take a look at Paul and his letters. Paul is not an easy read, as you know. And in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, you addressed a couple of issues in reading Paul. So I'd like to talk about him in a bit. But first of all, tell us how you got to where you are. Did you have a startling conversion moment or what what lit this fire in you to teach the Bible? So like so many people, I grew up Catholic, attending weekly Mass, but I didn't have a personal relationship with God. So Mass was just something that I went to. I didn't pray outside of Mass and... Even though I was at Mass, I was certainly saying words of prayer, but they didn't mean anything from my heart. Like I wasn't actually really connecting to God. I had a storybook of, you know, like basic kids Bible stories that I did genuinely like to read when I was a kid, but I just read them as entertainment. Even reading them, never it never just really struck me that this was a living God or a personal God that I was to have a relationship with. I kind of just, you know, went into my teenage years thinking of God as an abstraction, a real abstraction, but not somebody that I would have a relationship. Then in high school, I was on a school bus ride home from an away soccer game. I I played soccer in high school. And one of my best friends who was on the team asked me, are you saved? Oh, my Yeah. And then she went on. She was a good evangelist. She said, what I mean is like, if God forbid you were to die today, would you know that you would be in heaven forever? My response was, I don't know. 
I've actually never thought about that. So she, good evangelist, went on to show me verses from the Bible, from Paul's letters, letter to the Romans, and tell me the plan of salvation. And she was really surprised that as she told me about Jesus, who he was, you know, how he came to earth, how he's the savior, she was really surprised that I knew so much about Jesus. I specifically remember she was shocked that I knew that Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. How about that? And I knew that by heart from Mass as as a Catholic, but she, as someone who had a relationship with Jesus through her upbringing as a Baptist, was really perplexed. She was like, Colleen, well, why why don't, does that mean anything to you? Like when you say that, you understand that Jesus is this sacrificial lamb, that he's taking away your sins. Doesn't that ring a bell in your life personally? And I was like, nope, nope, never really thought about it. You know, I play the music ministry. I can play the notes to that song. But I've never really thought about the, inter- the eternal implications. So she shared them with me, that this was actually about eternal life. And I didn't believe her. So I was definitely very skeptical. I wasn't going to believe this just because my friend was telling me. She was a great friend, but I didn't, you know, consider her like necessarily the most authoritative source. But she had struck something in me that I felt like this question was really important. That since I didn't know the answer, I needed to figure out the answer because this was of eternal significance. So uh, as a headstrong teenager, I figured I could figure it out. And so I did stop by her church a couple of times and I got a copy of the New Testament. You know, they had lots of New Testaments in the lobby they were giving out. And so I got a copy of the New Testament and I decided that I was going to read it and see if her claim that Jesus was freely offering himself to me for my salvation was true. Or if it was the opposite, I realized. The opposite meaning. Yeah. So thinking back to myself as a high schooler, I had really absorbed the American culture that we're supposed to work hard. We're supposed to achieve things, to earn things, to be really good people. And this somehow makes people think highly of us, right? Like this is being a good person, you know? like being smart, achieving things, being good, behaving well. And I had kind of just passively absorbed that, well, if, if, if there's heaven, then I guess it's because we're supposed to like achieve things and be good. Like that must be what God wants. But and if she, I'm a good person, I'll go to heaven. So yeah. salvation by works kind of. Yep. Salvation by works, yep. the, the American you know, ideal that we're going to achieve it on our own. And she had really called this into question because she said, no, it's a free gift, but you have to accept it and you have to trust Jesus. It's not something you can do on your own. And I wasn't ready to believe that. Seemed kind of fanciful to me. So I took a New Testament and I approached it in an organized, headstrong teenager manner. I got three different highlighters and I was going to highlight, I still have this Bible, highlight in one color everything that was about salvation through works highlight in a different color, everything that was about God's grace, and then highlight in another color if we could actually even know we had a relationship with God because she was so confident and I was a little bit skeptical of her confidence. So I did that. I went through the New Testament. um, And when I was done, I didn't really know the answer 
because I had a lot of highlights from those different colors and I didn't know how to put it together. But by doing that, as you can imagine, I learned a lot about God and learned a lot about who Jesus was and I was totally taken in. And so once I got my driver's license, I started to go to Sunday night and Wednesday night Bible teaching services at her Baptist church. Um, I couldn't get enough about learning about this question, even though I didn't really quite have an answer. Um, And as you might know, at a lot of Baptist churches, there's something called an altar call at the end of services where the pastor or preacher will often... um, invite everyone to close their eyes and anybody who wants to have a personal relationship with Jesus who doesn't know if they're going to spend eternal life with him is invited to put their hand up for prayer. And sometimes maybe someone would come over to you and show you some verses in the Bible. So I was there for this dozens of times and never put my hand up because I was too proud or shy or embarrassed, or I just didn't want to talk to anybody about this because I was figuring it out on my, on my own, I guess. Um, but in every time we had this altar call, I would pray to Jesus and I was really praying. He was really my, my savior. He had become my Lord. And I would tell Jesus that I believed with my entire heart and soul that he was the Messiah and that I wanted to be with him for all eternity and that I'm sorry in advance if I get the faith and works thing wrong. Amen. Oh. <laughs> and that was my prayer. Um, and that's how I came to relationship with Jesus. And that continued for a year or so. And I really started to grow as a disciple. I did what disciples of Jesus have always done. I was reading the Bible on my own. I started to have a prayer list to pray for other people. And I was going to Baptist churches to learn more about the scriptures and be in discussion with other people. And at the same time, Catholic Mass came alive for me because suddenly I realized all this stuff I read in the New Testament, like the Gloria was from Luke's gospel. And that during Mass, I was just saying words of the scripture. So Catholic liturgy became deeply meaningful for me. all because of this conversion. And then it really came to a conclusion a couple of years later, during my freshman year of college, this one day, I was walking home from class on a Thursday in April. It was a beautiful day, through a dorm courtyard. And I suddenly just felt a surge of joy and warmth and burden being lifted and really just delight. And suddenly I knew in this joyful, completely non-intellectual way that um, it was real. And so once I graduated from college, went off to numerous army bases for training, at every stop, I would find my Catholic church for mass and then a Baptist church to go to Wednesday night Bible teaching. And that's how I continued for many years Then I was at my permanent duty station in North Carolina, and another good friend asked me a question. And he said, if you were ever to have children, would you raise them Catholic or Baptist? Good question. Yeah, I was a bit of a perplexing mystery to him. Right, because I was going to both. 
And I was actually serving in both. I was doing children's ministry in a Baptist church and catechesis in my Catholic parish. So he was really perplexed and asked me this question. And just like my friend on the school bus had asked seven years prior, I didn't know the answer. I did not have a good intellectual answer to this question. I didn't know the answer to this question in my heart. And it stirred up a fire in me to know the answer because, again, it just hit me that like, wow, this is really important. I need to personally know the answer to this question, not just leave this to like randomness. I need to know where am I grounding myself in the faith. And so I started to search again. I went to the closest big box bookstore in Fayetteville, North Carolina and bought a copy of the catechism. This was the first time that I had actually ever even held or touched or read a catechism. It it was not something that I had really ever seen before. But I figured I would read it with a notebook and I would make a list of everything I agreed with, everything I disagreed with. And then I don't know, maybe look at those tally marks, figure out, am I Catholic or not? And I didn't really know where I was going with this. But I was a follower of Jesus at this point and I was praying. So I also made this an exercise of prayer. And I was just asking God to give me wisdom, give me illumination so that I can know what is true. Because this was a search for truth. I didn't know what was true. And just my question was, you know, God, I know you're real. I know I'm following you and I know we're in communion, but how are we supposed to be in a church? What are we supposed to do about a church? And that was my question. And so my plan went out the window really quickly because I opened up the catechism and part one was this beautiful exposition of the creed. And so I was seeing everything that I had come to know and believe as true through the scriptures, through my relationship with God, through the Catholic liturgy during the past seven years of my life. I was seeing it all just summarized in the most beautiful way in the catechism. And so I realized, do you know what? I I, I can't write down everything I agree with because it's pretty much everything. But there were some things that I was kind of put off by how they were formulated. I, you know, the one thing that really hit me was I just didn't like the idea of, you know, say a doctrine like that of the Immaculate Conception of Mary being proclaimed only in the 19th century. I think intellectually this hit me as like, eh, why did we need to do that? I believe this is possible, but should we be adding stuff in the 19th century? I'm not sure. So that was a bit of a hang up. And then I did have a conversion moment for that. I I would say ironically, except this was God's plan. On the Feast of the Immaculate Conception, I had gone to Mass because I was a devout Catholic, and I was praying by myself after Mass. And I felt that, that warmness and that true presence of the Lord just telling me again that all you need to do is believe in the church. And I'd been reading the Catechism. We have that line in the Creed, I believe in the church. And normally we think of the creed, I think more often as like, okay, we believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but we also believe in the church. And it just overwhelmed me that all I need to do is believe in the church. I don't need to understand everything. I don't need to ardently think that 
every single detail is worded the exact way that maybe I would. I just have to believe that the Holy Spirit is leading the church, the body of Christ, to its fullness, to its completion, and guiding that handing on of the faith. That's all I have to believe, and I was ready to believe it. And once I did, again, I felt that new freedom, that new freedom of aligning myself with God's will. So that was in December. Fast forward a couple months, and my pastor, Father David at St. Patrick's Catholic Church in Fayetteville, North Carolina, was doing this wonderful teaching series in his homilies on Acts of the Apostles during the Easter season. And as he went through these weekday homilies, I would come to every Wednesday evening Mass, and listening, it just became so clear to me, this was the affirmation, the confirmation that I needed As we went through the first half of Acts of the Apostles, that book of the Bible was showing me what it means to actually say with one's heart, I believe in the church. And the church today is the same church as that first century. And so it showed me that believing in the church wasn't just like an intellectual yes or no to certain propositions or ideas, but believing that the Holy Spirit was guiding the church in how we pass on the faith that God has given us. And how they were doing it in the first century is the same reason, the same way that we're doing it today. I I was really struck by the way you said that, that the church today is the same church as then. The thing that struck me was that we have so many problems in our church that are obvious to us. And a lot of people use that as a real, as a reason not to believe in the church. You know, how could God have established this messed up church? You know, but you read carefully Acts of the Apostle and you read the other letters and you see it was always messed up because it's made of people who are fallible. And there's an encouragement there. Exactly. And the questions that I was having as someone in my mid-20s, people had been asking questions about how to understand what God has revealed to us, they were asking those questions in the first century. And some of those people asking those questions had even met Jesus in person during the period of his earthly ministry. So I didn't need to doubt my own being at home in the church simply because I had those doubts and questions. I was just like them. Well, we were talking about Peter and Paul a minute ago, and I immediately think of Peter. You know, Jesus actually praying for Peter that his faith will be upheld and strengthened because Jesus knows that he's going to betray him. And the fact that he doubted for those few days, you know, until he met with the resurrected Lord and was reassured, that doesn't mean that he failed in faith. So we're allowed to have these times when we question and grapple with really big difficulties, and Jesus helps us through those things. Exactly. And sometimes those difficulties, like mine was way back then in my mid-20s, was with a doctrine, you know, something we might think of as a doctrine. Sometimes, and this is so true today, difficulties are practical about how do we live out the faith? How do we, how do we live our faith when society might seem different than us? or things have changed 
from a time where maybe we thought we had the right answer. And that is really what captivates me about both Peter and Paul, that once Jesus has ascended and they are living out this growth of the church fueled by the Holy Spirit, they are facing so many practical situations that Jesus had never talked to them in person about. You know, so sometimes today we can think, if you remember, there was like those bracelets that so that would say WWJD, yeah, what yeah. would Jesus do? Well, we have so many questions, practical things that face us as modern day believers that there is no WWJD answer because Jesus didn't personally face that in his first century, mostly Jewish context. And Peter and Paul, they just get hit by this in Acts of the Apostles. So as we had mentioned, our first son is named Peter, and he's very much named Peter because of what Peter experiences in Acts of the Apostles, especially in Acts chapter 10, when Peter has his own moment where there's no exact WWJD, when he meets Cornelius and he has to figure out okay, you know, I'm a Jew. We're not supposed to be sharing in a meal fellowship, but I'm seeing the Holy Spirit descend on this person and he loves God and he wants to be part of God's covenant people. How am I going to respond? And so the way Peter and Paul both face all of these practical questions of evangelization and living in different cultural contexts, I just find that so encouraging and so relevant to us today. Well, we can look, yeah, speaking of Acts, if we jump to Acts chapter 15 in the Council of Jerusalem, you know, there's a there's a time when they were hit with both the doctrinal issue and the practical issue, and they had to solve both of them, and people were, you know, killing each other over it. <laughs> so, you know, talk a little bit about that and how that can be maybe a model for us as we grapple with these kinds of issues. Yeah, so Acts chapter 15 is really the chapter that the Holy Spirit used to plant me and root me in the Catholic Church. Wow. So, yeah, and I'll, I'll read the first line just because, you know, this doesn't start off as super inspirational. So Acts chapter 15, verse 1 begins with this scenario. But, which anytime we hear but at the start of a passage of scripture, it tells us that something dramatic is about to happen here. But. Some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brethren, meaning Jesus's followers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So we hear that right here in Jerusalem, the heart of the early church in the first century, there's a big debate about who can be saved. There's some people who are saying you have to be circumcised. Then we hear in verse two, Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. And that's probably a massive understatement. (laughs) Because if we were to think about what Paul and Barnabas and Peter have seen the past couple of years that is recorded in Acts of the Apostles, they have seen people who are not Jews come to believe in God. They have seen the Holy Spirit fall upon non-Jews, people who are not circumcised. So they have seen how God is moving. 
So yeah, they are going to put up a fight against people who are saying you have to be circumcised to somehow be saved, to somehow be part of God's family. So this is a real debate. And you know, if it weren't for the Holy Spirit, God's love, this could have torn the early church apart easily. So what do they do about this big problem? Well, the church, the church gathers, the apostles and the elders, they gather together and they hear from people. They hear from Paul and Barnabas. They hear what is, you know, what are we seeing the Holy Spirit do? But they don't just leave it at that experience. They take out the scriptures. And so they open up the scriptures. For them, this would have been what we call the Old Testament because they weren't reading the Acts of the Apostles. (laughs) So they open up the Old Testament, just like us today. You know, we have a modern problem and we say, I need to find a scripture passage to see if the Lord will speak to us anew through this inspired passage. So they open up the Old Testament and they read it together. They pray about it. And then they make a decision. And interestingly, the decision is a compromise. It's not one that is 100% of any side in this debate. But they make a decision in the Holy Spirit, in prayer, together. And that is what it means to believe in the church. That, that that is how the church makes decisions. That's how the Holy Spirit leads us. And then they send this decision out in that day and age. It wouldn't, wouldn't be on social media. They did it in a letter. They spread the decision about. And if you're thinking, well, that must have been nice, that they just sent a decision out in writing and everybody agreed. Wrong. That is not what happened. As you were mentioning, Sarah, that didn't settle it. The debate would go on. It would be dicey. And they had to figure out, you know, new questions that were arising. One that comes up in a different community, in the community of Corinth, that was very multicultural over in Greek. There's a debate over how women should cover or decorate their hair and their heads when they're in church. And this debate happened because there was people of different cultures coming together who had different assumptions and understandings about what this meant in liturgy. And in that setting, you know, that doesn't become big enough that we need a council in Jerusalem. It's something that Paul gives them advice on locally as the local church in Corinth. And he tells them the most important thing is to discern and choose the outcome that keeps unity. That finding unity is really more important than exactly what's on somebody's head, but staying together and not allowing these things to rip apart the church. When Just to get back to that decision for a minute, it takes us all the way back to your question about faith and works. And because that was actually at the, you know, the center of this question, you know, how how are we saved? Why are we saved? What makes us saved? And the, the decision, the doctrinal decision that came down there was that we're saved by grace. And yet there needed to be some practical directives in terms of how is that going to play out? So what does that mean? So how do we have groups of Jewish Christians and, you know, pagan converts living together, worshiping together? And how do they practice when, when one group of people does things that two others are just downright evil or wrong? 
you know, do we eat meat that was offered to idols? Is that partaking in idol worship or is that just you're having dinner before you go to church? So it's interesting to me that they, that, that compromise that you mentioned, it really was for the sake of unity, but there was no compromise on the doctrine. Exactly. And we probably, even with our best imaginations, can probably not even imagine how important that law and that identity was to the Jews. Because, you know, the beauty of reading the entire Bible is that we see that story of Israel and they are our ancestors spiritually. And their whole identity was centered on being set apart through the law. So this was a hard moment for them. And I, I mean, I, we probably could continue talking about the, the theology of faith and works for ages, but that's not really the point of, of our conversation today. I have often heard people say they just don't like to read Paul. They'll stick with the Gospels. You know, maybe they'll read Peter a little bit, maybe dip into the letters here and there, but Paul is hard. And it, it's true, he's hard to read sometimes for some of the reasons that you've been saying. But why would you say people should read Paul and how? So I'll say something provocative from the start. Paul is probably not as hard as we think. So in defense of Paul, his letters, many of them are a lot shorter than the Gospels, a lot shorter than some of the narrative historical books of the Old Testament. So if you're feeling a little bit skittish about tackling one of Paul's letters, the good news is they are short. And that is obviously a good thing sometimes, right, when we're trying to read the Bible. Now, the most important reason to read Paul is because he is truly like us. So probably none of us listening to this podcast anywhere were around in the first century when Jesus did his earthly ministry. None of us got to see Jesus walk around Galilee. We didn't talk to him in person when he was the rabbi giving the Sermon on the Mount. And Paul didn't either. Paul knows the resurrected Jesus, right? So Paul has his conversion to knowing that Jesus is truly the Savior and Messiah when he encounters the resurrected Jesus. So Paul is like us. His personal relationship with Jesus is through the Holy Spirit, through his encounter of the resurrected Jesus through the Eucharist, through the church. And so we can relate to Paul. Like us, Paul lives in a multicultural society. He is a citizen of the Roman Empire. He has a government that's not Judeo-Christian. And he has to figure that out, to figure out how am I going to spread this faith that is so important to me in these diverse contexts. And that's really similar to us today. So when you read Paul's letters, they can feel hard because they're not like the things we're used to reading. So Paul is not going to recount for us the story of Jesus's earthly ministry. He's going to tell us instead about what it means. He's going to tell us what does the fact that Jesus walked the earth, gave himself as a sacrifice and rose for the dead from the dead. What does that mean for us? So I would say, go read Paul, because we know the story of Jesus's earthly life, but Paul is going to say, this is what it means. This is how you are meant to take this, and this is what the Holy Spirit is trying to do in your life. Paul is all about 
the application and the implications of Jesus for us. That's beautiful. And into my mind flashed the picture of your teenage self having that same question. You know, and I imagine that Paul was instrumental in helping you to find that out. Yes. You know, Paul is the place where we get so many of our church's teachings, so many things that are in the catechism. If you look down at the footnotes, they're going to be footnoted to Paul's letters. So they're, they are important. We hear tiny snippets of them at Mass. And I think that is truly another challenge, that Paul's writings, they are letters. And as all of us today know, we still use letters, right? Letters are inherently a conversation between two different parties, two different people or two different groups of people. And so there's always a backstory to a letter. And when you don't know the backstory, like if you can imagine picking up a letter your neighbor wrote to their cousins in another state, if you don't know the backstory, it's going to just feel a little bit disorienting at first. And Paul's letters can be the same way because we're not friends with the Christians in Corinth. We're not friends with the people of Galatia. So we don't know the backstory, but don't be afraid. Once you start reading it, you can start to imagine that backstory. You can pick up little tidbits of it. You know, one of the, the cool things is in Paul's letters at the end, kind of their custom in the ancient world was they would give what we might call our social media shout outs. Like at the end of Paul's letter, he's going to give shout outs to all the names of the Christians who are helping him out. So there's a community there and it can feel a little bit weird at first when we don't know their backstory, but don't be afraid keep going into it because you are going to discover some of the most practical and inspiring words in the Bible. Colleen, thank you for those inspiring reasons to read Paul. It makes me want to get out my Bible right away and start reading these letters. Before we go, can you tell us your, do you have a very favorite verse in the whole Bible? Something that's been meaningful to you over time that you like to pray with? Yes. So my favorite verse in high school is still my favorite verse now. And it is Mark chapter 9, verse 24. And it's the words, you know, probably shouted or said with a lot of emotion from a parent about his child. And he says to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And this just struck me in high school because that is exactly how I felt in high school when I was trying to know God, really on my own, trying to read the Bible on my own for the first time. And it's one of those lines that has always resonated. So as I pondered really believing in the church and reading the catechism for the first time, it was that same question, like, God, I believe. I'm just looking for truth. Help me in the places that I don't believe or don't know what to believe. And even now, much further on in my walk with Jesus and living out the faith in a missionary way, this is still my question that, you know, I believe in God and I'm nourished by the body of Christ in the church. But there are so many questions that each of us face in daily life. How am I supposed to serve my family? What am I supposed to do in this situation that just seems confusing and hopeless and beyond anything that I can bring to solve the problem. And it's that same prayer. Lord, I believe. I surrender. I trust in you. 
just help. Whatever those doubts and places of confusion I have are, just help me. Very powerful. And, you know, it's only one line. And yet we know we have these little one-liners we pray all the time as Catholics. Jesus, I offer that to you. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And let's pray with that now. Actually, if you wouldn't mind, because that's so short, I encourage anybody who is, is listening who would like to pray with that, you know, pray with it on your own, but first kind of break it down into pieces. You can, you can think about it word by word. You know, Lord, consider who it is that you're addressing, that he is the Lord, that nothing is impossible with him, that he loves you. All the things you can think of, who is this person you are talking to? Lord, I believe. Well, what, what do you believe? What do you believe about him? Which promise? You know, why is it your intent to believe? Verbalize all of that to him. Because when you, I mean, yes, you're reminding him, but you're also reminding yourself of who he is and what his promise is and why you can pray to him. So, Lord, I believe, help thou, it says in one translation, help thou, you help. You know, you're, you're asking the person to help you who gives us faith. God gives us faith. Think of the way Jesus prayed for Peter that his faith would not fail. Then 2 Corinthians 12, verse 8, Paul says that God's grace is sufficient. You can ask him for help. Help what? My unbelief. Verbalize that to him too. What's the problem? Why are you struggling with believing? Lay that all at his feet. And again, trust in his grace to help you and to help you believe, to strengthen your faith. And so, Holy Spirit, we ask you to come and open our hearts and our minds to receive your word. As we pray this just very simple prayer, Lord, I believe, help my member be. And we pray, I pray now for all those listening, that you will help any unbelief, strengthen their faith through grace. And we thank you with all our heart for your word, for the life and strength that it brings. Open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive and ponder what you say to us in scripture. Give us grace to love and live your word in our daily lives. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the living word. Amen. Mary, mother of the word, pray for us. Colleen, I have loved hearing you share with us today. And just in the minute we have before we go, can you tell us a little bit about the Catholic Biblical School? So what's unique about us is that our mission is to make the entire Bible accessible to people, no matter what their experience level. So whether someone is just starting out, and this is their first time reading the Bible outside of Mass, or they've been somebody who's been leading a Bible study in their parish for decades. So to do this, we've broken the Bible down into 112 lessons designed to be taught by a real teacher who is in communion with the people that they are teaching, asking the Lord what he wants this teacher to speak into the lives of these people that they are connected to virtually or in person. So this started out in Michigan in 2009, and now people across three continents are participating wow. in these Bible studies. 
I had no idea. I thought it was just in Michigan. That's beautiful. Beautiful. Well, thank you. And so is there a website people can go to to find that? Our website is cbsmich dot org. cbsmich.org. I will put that in the show notes here. And also you have a website and I know that you have not written for it for a long time since you became director there, but I love your website. It has so many just thoughtful and encouraging and thought-provoking, you know, articles about our faith and about scripture. So where can people find that to read what you have written? My blog has a long title. It is practicalevangelization.wordpress.com. And as a teaser, the most recent blog is about indulgences. So if you want to know about indulgences, (laughs) faith and works, go check it out. There we go. Well, thank you for that. And thank you who are listening. You know, next time you're tempted to skip over Paul, remember, it's not as hard as you might think to read him. Not only are many of his letters short, Paul is truly like us. He encountered the resurrected Christ. He struggled to live in a multicultural, sometimes antagonistic society. Get the backstory to his letters and then keep in mind where the Gospels tell us about Jesus, Paul tells us why that matters to us and how to apply what he taught to our lives. Paul's letters are the source of many of our Catholic beliefs. And if you struggle with understanding or belief, ask for help from the Lord. This is Sarah Chris Meyer, and this has been the Living the Word Bible Podcast. Thank you for listening. Join me every Thursday for conversations with women who love and live God's Word. You can read Colleen's reflections in the Living the Word Catholic Women's Bible, which is available from AveMariaPress.com along with a companion journal. Use the code BiblePodcast, all one word, for a special price when you order this year. And God bless you as you read His Word. This podcast is part of the Spoke Street Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.